Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. We are now in the very chapter where we will read of our Lord's return. Lord willing, we will cover that part of this chapter next week as we cover the remaining verses in chapter 19. This morning we're in verses 6 through 10, and so we're nearing the end. Super grateful for uh, Brian Hammonds filling the pulpit last week, um, and his sermon from 1 Peter 4 really served to dovetail nicely into our study of the book of Revelation as Peter exhorts the church of his day to live in light of the fact that we are in the last days. And if it was true for the church of Peter's day, it is certainly true for the church of today. We are in the last days, and Jesus will return soon, and so we need to live in light of that. The last time we were in our study of Revelation a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the second half of chapter 18 and the first five verses of chapter 19, where we saw the responses of the people in that day to the news of the fall of Babylon. Babylon had fallen. And so on one hand, we had the kings of the earth and the merchants who bought and sold all their goods and the, uh, the mariners and the shipmasters who transported those goods all over the world lamented, lamented that Babylon, the world system of that day, had fallen. But the church and heaven rejoiced. And so we left off last week with the first five verses of chapter 19. And we saw heaven itself rejoicing because Babylon had fallen. Demonstrating that God had justly and rightly judged Babylon. And that his son Jesus had won the victory. So now this morning... In the passage that we're looking at here, in verses 6 through 10, heaven is going to continue to rejoice, and praises will continue to be lift up to God. But now, no longer because of the fall of Babylon, but instead now because the Lord reigns and because the marriage supper of the Lamb is at hand. So let's read God's Word beginning in verse 6 of chapter 19, continuing through to verse 10. Church, this is God's word. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Our God and King, we thank you so much for the privilege to gather as your people in this place and to sing of your majesty and your glory and your good news. We thank you for walking us through these readings and these songs that proclaim and reinforce the gospel to us. And we turn now to your word, and we are so thankful for this book that we hold in our hands. And we're so thankful, Father, that you have overseen it so that what we hold in our hands, we know to be your very breath. And so we ask in faith, Father, that you would equip your church this morning, that you would build your church this morning, that you would encourage your church in these last days as we await the return of our groom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If I were to subtitle this morning's sermon, it would be encouragement to a suffering church because that's what this is. This is encouragement. John is writing to the churches of Asia Minor there in the first century, small, struggling churches filled with new believers who have a new faith in Christ, but who, are, who find themselves and their new faith being tested in the fiery furnace of persecution and suffering. But he's also writing to the church today. He's writing to our church. He's writing to you and I who likewise find ourselves in a day where we undergo trials and persecutions and hardships of various kinds. And so it's my prayer this morning that God would use these truths. We're going to seek to unpack four amazing truths from this passage that I pray God will use as an encouragement to us as an encouragement to our church to equip us and build us and grow us and sustain us as we seek to finish the race in this life as Christ's bride. So it starts in verse 6 where John hears the voice of a great multitude. It's the same great multitude that he heard in the first five verses of chapter 19. But then the ground of their praise, the ground of their worship of God in those first five verses was the, the judgment that God pronounced on Babylon. Babylon had been defeated. Babylon was now fallen. And so heaven and earth or heaven and the church worshiped. And now the same group in heaven continues their worship and they continue their rejoicing but now the ground of their worship is something new. Instead of the ground of their worship being the fall of Babylon, now the ground of their worship is that God reigns. That's the first of our four truths that we want to look at this morning that, that will seek to encourage the suffering church of John's day and today. That the Lord our God reigns. The Lord our God reigns. 
John hears the voice of a great multitude and he describes that sound as the roar of many waters. And, and, and he describes it as that that sounds like the, son, the sound of many peals of thunder crying out. So this was an enormously loud sound, but it was also a song. It was a song. And we know it was a song because uh, verses 6b through 8 are indented as if they were lyrics. And the song begins in verse 6 with hallelujah. This is the fourth hallelujah that we've seen in the chapter 19. And as we noted last time, this is a, a transliteration directly from the Hebrew. It's, it's two Hebrew words put together. Hallel, which means praise. It's a, it's a command. Praise. Worship. And Yah, which is shorthand for the, the tetragrammaton. The, it's shorthand for God's personal name for himself. Yahweh, Lord. And so literally it is, praise God. Worship Yahweh. But what is the ground for that? He says, look at verse 6. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Praise Yahweh, worship the Lord, for He reigns. God reigns. Now what does it mean that God reigns? Well, in order for someone to reign... That means that they need to have some kind of authority, like the authority of a king or some kind of royalty with which they will then reign. Also, if one is going to reign, they need to have a kingdom over which they are reigning. And so this is a reminder to us that our God is the king. He is the almighty one. He is the sovereign ruler who is reigning over his kingdom but what is his kingdom that's very important for us to understand given this passage what is God's kingdom we remember that when Jesus came in his first advent what did he say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand it's here the kingdom of heaven is now among us in Mark's gospel as Jesus begins his earthly ministry he comes into Galilee and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. And so the kingdom of God among men on earth has been inaugurated with the coming of Christ, with the first advent of Christ. But as we look around in the world today, don't we see much in the world today that doesn't seem to fit within the reign of a good and loving and gracious and perfect God. What gives? Well, it's because his kingdom and his reign, though it was inaugurated at his first advent, will not be consummated and will not be completed until his second advent, his second coming, which in the Revelation we know to be right around the corner. And so we live, you and I, in this time and in this place where God's kingdom is already, but also not yet. It is already here. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated among men. 
with his first advent. But it is also not yet fully consummated. It is not yet fully complete. We know that there are many of God's elect that he still intends to bring into his kingdom. And then there are also many of the kingdom's enemies that yet need to be put down and defeated forever. Babylon is one of them. But there is also the great dragon, Satan. The first beast, the Antichrist. The second beast, the prophet, false prophet. And these will all be put down in the end. And we will see their final destruction in the closing verses of chapter 19 and in chapter 20. But what this great multitude is celebrating here in verse 6 is not the already not yet aspect of the kingdom, but rather the finally consummated kingdom of God's eternal and lasting reign. That's what they're celebrating. And so what we have here in this section is what scholars call a a proleptic. A proleptic is a picture of something that hasn't happened yet. A picture of something that's still yet in the future. We've referred to it in our study of Revelation as the, the telescoping effect of the book of Revelation. That brings us from John's day to the very end and then back and forth as we've seen this many times. It's once again telescoped us to the very end and show us something that is yet to happen. So when the angels sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, it is in reference to that point in time in which all of God's enemies have been finally and completely put down, and He reigns in His kingdom perfectly without any opposition whatsoever. And so, How does this truth encourage the church of John's day? How does it encourage the suffering church of our day? Well, in two ways. First, it's a reminder to us that the Lord our God reigns today. His kingdom may not yet be fully consummated and completed, but it's been inaugurated. And our God reigns today. He is reigning now. He is today the sovereign ruler who is in charge. He is king even now. And and in his divine wisdom and under his divine and sovereign rule, he has decreed that his enemies and ours are given a certain level of latitude to operate. But as we've learned throughout this book, they're on a leash And it's a short leash. And they will not be allowed to operate outside the bounds of only that which he intends that they sovereignly will operate in order to fulfill his sovereign and good purpose and plan. And so as we suffer in this life, we do do so with the full knowledge that our God is still in control. He is sovereign. He's on his throne he's ruling today he's ultimately in control and nothing will happen apart from his plan and we know because paul tells us in romans 8 28 that everything that he does is ultimately for the good of his people and the glory of his name and this is the reign that the angels sing of so secondly this truth 
is also encouraging, not only because it reminds us that the Lord reigns today, but it also reminds us that there is coming a day when the reign of God will be unopposed in heaven and on earth, and it will be perfect, and it will be unobstructed with the fall of man. There will be no appearance of the fallen nature of the world. This is the reign that the angels sing of in verse 6 when they say, The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. John is given here a glimpse of the perfect, unobstructed, unhindered, and unopposed reign of God. Why? As a means of encouraging us that this is coming. This This is coming and it's coming soon. No more sin. No more evil. No more suffering. No more trials. Just the perfect, gracious, loving reign of our eternal God. But there is a second ground, so that's the first ground of the praising that's happening in this passage, that the Lord our God reigns. But there's a second ground here for the angels rejoicing and worshiping in this passage. And it's because in verses 7 and 8, we're told that the marriage of the Lamb is at hand. The marriage of the Lamb is at hand. Marriage is often used as a metaphor in Scripture for God's most intimate of relationship with his people. We see it all over the place in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Your maker is your husband, and so we are his wife. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, he writes, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Speaking to the Lord. And then he speaks to the people again. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The whole book of Hosea, as an example, and the story of the prophet Hosea's marriage to a prostitute, Gomer, is a real-life analogy of God's intimate relationship even with adulterous Israel. But what does it mean? And so we, we see this, this metaphor here all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Je- Jesus, at several points, he uses the, the metaphor of marriage um, in parables to teach us about the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 22, he he tells us about the parable of a king who gives a a wedding feast for his son and how so many of the guests who were invited to that wedding feast squandered that opportunity. In Matthew 25, he gives us the parable of the wedding and the ten virgins, five of whom were foolish and weren't ready for the bridegroom to return and five of whom were wise and had both their lamp and the oil for their lamp. And they were ready. They were ready when the bridegroom returned. And of course, we know that the Apostle Paul, in his famous treatise of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, uses the marriage of husband and wife as a picture of the gospel and as a picture of God's most intimate of love and relationship in the marriage of his son to his bride, the church. And so here again in Revelation 19, marriage is again used as a metaphor of the most intimate of relationship between God and his 
chosen people. But what does it mean that the marriage of the Lamb has come? Again, this is a proleptic. And, and, and so this is a picture of the end. This is a picture of something that hasn't happened yet. But wait a second, I thought we were already the bride of Christ as the church. Well, we are. But in order for us to understand this marriage metaphor and how it's used in Revelation 19, we need to understand more about the ancient Jewish customs regarding marriage and the wedding ceremony. According to ancient Jewish customs, first, the the groom left his home. Presumably, that would be his father's home. He would leave his father's home and he would travel to the home of his bride. And don't we see Christ in that? That our Lord left his father's side. He left his home in heaven. And he came down and put on flesh to live as one of us. Why? Because we're his bride. He came down here for us. Secondly, according to Jewish custom, the groom would, when he arrives, he would pay a dowry. And the price of that dowry was set by the father. And that price was the price for that bride. Of course, we know that Jesus paid the price for us. It was a price that was set by the father. And that price was the cost of redeeming the bride of Christ. He paid that price when he died in our place on the cross of Calvary. Third, according to Jewish customs, that groom, having paid the dowry, and having paid that dowry, he's now entered into a legally binding covenant with the bride and with the bride's family. Now they are betrothed. It was was much more formal than our marriage engagement today. The only way out of a betrothal was through a decree of divorce. And so, having paid that dowry, they're now betrothed. But according to Jewish custom, he then would return home to his father's house and prepare a place for he and his new bride, the the, the bridal chamber, as it was called. So he'd go back to prepare that place. And with Jesus' death and resurrection complete, our betrothal to Christ is complete. Having placed our our faith in Christ and, and, and repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, our betrothal to Jesus as our groom is complete. And having paid that most expensive of dowries with his own life, what does he do? He goes back to the Father and he's preparing a place for us as we're told. So now we are, we are formally the bride of Christ. We are the wife of Christ corporately. Just as uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts refer to Mary as the wife of Joseph and refers to Joseph as the husband of Mary while they were still betrothed and had yet to come together. This betrothal period lasted anywhere from six months to a year. And after that time, the groom would then return to collect his bride and bring her to the place that he had prepared for her and consummate the marriage. And now, for the first time, husband and wife are together and they will never again separate. 
And church, we are the bride of Christ now. The dowry has been paid. He's preparing a place for us. And he's coming back one day to collect us to himself. And when he does, we will never again be separated from him. Our union with Christ has already been established. His spirit is in us. But one day he will be with us, not just spiritually, but physically. And while now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see him face to face. And this will be cause for much rejoicing and celebrating when that happens, which is what we see here in this angelic song depicting the marriage of the Lamb. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. See, not only does the groom go and prepare a place for the bride, but the bride prepares herself for the groom's return. And so we, the bride of Christ, the church today, we make ourselves ready for his return. How do we do that? How do we make ourselves ready? Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then John adds his commentary, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That phrase, it was granted. I don't know if you noticed this about that, but that's another one of those divine passives that we've seen so often in our study of Revelation. Divine passive, again, is a, it's an active verb where something is happening, there's an action taking place, but we're not told explicitly who the actor is. But from context, it is clear to us that the actor is God. God's the one who's doing this. And so who is it who is granting the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure? It's God granting that to her. God is the one who is sovereignly working to make her ready. And so God is the one who makes the bride ready for the return of the groom. And the fine linen with which we are clothed, John tells us, are the righteous deeds of the saints. And they are granted to us by the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. His life of perfect righteousness, perfectly obeying the law while he was here. His life of perfect righteousness is credited to us, granted to us by faith in Jesus Christ when we trust in him alone for our rescue from sin and judgment. Read Romans 3. We are justified. That means made righteous only by faith in Jesus' righteousness credited to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he who began it is going to finish it. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, who's that? It's Jesus. He also will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus it is the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account by faith that justifies us and makes us right enough to stand before God. But it is also this very same Jesus who will ensure that we'll make it to the end. 
and be prepared for his return. But, but note here that the bride also prepares herself. It, he, it, the song says, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And so there is this beautiful partnership between us and God, whereby he grants us to grow and mature and be conformed to the image of Christ, but also where we have the privilege of participating in our own progressive sanctification, whereby we are progressively conformed to the image of Christ. Paul writes about this beautiful cooperation between us and him in our own growth in Christ. In Colossians 1, he says, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's the aim. That everyone may be presented mature in Christ. How's that going to happen? Where are we going to find the strength for that? Verse 28, for this I toil. So he's working at it. He's putting in effort. He's working at this maturity. How's he doing that? Struggling with all his energy, which he powerfully works within me. You see that? He's toiling, but with God's energy working in him. He also puts it this way in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What do you think that means other than, hey, you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work at it and keep working at it. How are you going to do that? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so do we have a role in our own sanctification? Absolutely. But ultimately it is God who takes his child and turns him into a saint and brings him and ushers him ultimately to glory. What an encouragement this would have been to the first century church there in Asia Minor as John writes this. To lift their eyes from their own suffering and persecution. To lift their eyes from their own failures. And their seemingly endless fight against indwelling sin. And I'm sure they felt as we often do. That it seems as though in this fight is often two steps forward and three steps back. For them to lift their eyes from that and to step back from that. And be reminded that the marriage of the Lamb is at hand. You're betrothed. And that betrothal will not be severed. And the groom's coming back. And he will consummate the marriage in great rejoicing and celebration. And until that day, they're being made ready. They're being made ready for his return. And the same is true for us today. The marriage of the Lamb is at hand. And one day our betrothal to him will be consummated when he returns for his bride. And until that day, we're being made ready. We're being made ready for his return. And so may we be encouraged to keep fighting against indwelling sin and to keep persevering in the faith, knowing that we're being conformed to the image of Christ and we're being made ready for him when he comes back, our groom.
A third truth here that will encourage the suffering church is blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the fourth of seven beatitudes that we see throughout the book of Revelation. So we've got three more to come. But this one is blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we've got the marriage of the Lamb in verse 7. Now the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9. What's the difference? Well, according to ancient Jewish customs, after the consummation of the marriage, there was this great banquet, this celebration feast that husband and wife are now together and they are united. And what a blessing to be invited to that feast, to be invited to that event where we get to celebrate and rejoice at the union of husband and wife. The fact that the church here is referred to both as the bride of Christ as well as the guests who are invited to the wedding feast should not trouble us. This is often uh, an element of prophetic literature, especially uh, a metaphor in prophetic literature, that they are intended to be flexible enough to be communicated in a variety of applications. We could look at this as corporately the church is the bride of Christ. We are not individually the bride of Christ, but corporately we are the bride of Christ, and individually we're invited guests. We're invited guests to the wedding feast. And so if you've, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and your only hope to be redeemed to a holy God, then you're invited. You're, you're invited to this feast to end all feasts, this most joyous of celebrations where bride and groom are finally united on the last day. And this blessing would have been encouragement to the first century church and certainly to the 21st century church today. And friend, when we take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment as a church, when we do that, we do so with our eyes fixed on this day to come. Where we will enjoy this feast with Jesus, our groom, forever. The final encouragement in our text comes in verse 10. So in response to what John sees, this is incredibly good news to him. But in response to this, he's tempted to fall on his knees and worship the angel. And the angel rightly rebukes him. John writes, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. In other words, the spirit of all prophetic proclamation is the testimony of Jesus, which is what? The gospel. It needs to be a center of every sermon. But the final truth here that is an encouragement to the church is that only God deserves our worship. The angel says, I'm just a fellow servant of yours and, and, and of all those uh, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us, church. We hold to the testimony of Jesus. We are holding to the hope of the gospel. And so guess what? We too are just fellow servants, all of us. So that means that none of us deserves to be put on a pedestal. If you listen to pastors and preachers on, 
online. Let's don't put them on a pedestal. I guarantee you they will ultimately disappoint you at some point because we're not meant to be there at all. None of us are worthy of that and none of us can live up to those expectations, but God can and God will. He alone deserves our worship. He alone deserves our reverence and awe and he alone can stand up to the expectations of divinity. And so as a church, enduring suffering, enduring persecution, the first century church and the 21st century church today is encouraged to worship the creator, not creation. And this ultimately is why we were made, to worship God with our lives, to give him the glory that he deserves But we messed that up with our sin against God. And we marred the very image of God that we were created in with our sin. Now, because of sin, we can't do that which we were created for. We can't give glory to God. But God was so intent on receiving worship from his people that he sent his son, Jesus, to live the righteous life we couldn't and to die in our place on the cross to redeem us back to himself, and to remake us into the worshipers of him that we were intended to be. So now in Christ, we can do that for which we were created. We can worship our God and our creator. But in this text, we're reminded that one day our king will return for his bride. And our worship of him on that day, which today is still marred by sin, and it's still marred by the fall, and it's still marred by wrong motives, but on that day it'll be pure. On that day it'll be perfected. And our joy in Christ and our delight in Christ will will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And we will glorify him as he deserves for all eternity away from the presence of sin and the fall. Because this is what we were made for, and because this is what we were remade for in Christ, I believe this to be the only and primary response that we're to have to this text, is to worship God. We see it all throughout this text. Verse 6, hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Worship God, for he reigns. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory because the marriage of the Lamb is at hand. The Lamb has been sacrificed. The dowry has been paid. The betrothal has been inaugurated and the wedding is just around the corner. Praise God that it has been granted to us by our sovereign Lord to be made ready for that day. So praise God that he doesn't leave us, but he continues to work on us. And he's going to continue that work until we are made ready for our groom's return. And praise God that we're invited guests to this wedding banquet. And so let us obey the command of this angel in verse 10. And worship God, not just with our lips, but with our lives. The suffering and tribulation in this life paul calls them in second corinthians 4 light and momentary afflictions 
that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So let's endure them, knowing that through them we are being made ready for our groom as we await the return of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for this good news. I pray, Father, that you would help us as your bride to be encouraged by these rules, to be reminded that you are reigning even now, and that nothing escapes your notice or your intention, and you're working all things out for your, your glory and our good. We thank you for that, Father. Help us to be encouraged by that confidence of your sovereign reign. And Lord, remind us that you have in your sovereign grace betrothed us to your son and he's making a room ready for us and one day he'll come back and collect us as his bride to himself and we will feast in the house of zion forever enjoying that most intimate of relationship and fellowship with you our father let us live today in light of those truths help us father to live a life that worships you in every decision that we make in every activity that we undertake and even even the motives with which we undertake them may our lives be poured out on the altar of sacrifice to bring you glory lord both individually and corporately as a church Father, we are so thankful that until that day comes and until that feast arrives, you've given us a feast for the body of Christ to observe regularly in the Lord's Supper. So Father, as we prepare now to receive the bread, the body of your Son, and the juice, the blood that he spilled for us on Calvary, may we Take part in this feast, longing for and looking for that feast to come. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.